people need ordering principles. Hi, it's Sam. Sorry to interrupt. Just a disclaimer before we start. This episode was recorded back in November of 2018. So references to the feminist anti-fascist assemblies meeting every two weeks are no longer current, but their Facebook page is still up and still broadcasting. So if you want to get involved, do like that. 12 rules. (laughs) Hello. Uh, Welcome to 12 rules for what a new podcast on the far right from the perspective of the left. My name is Sam and I'm here in the studio with Alex. Hello. And Amy. Hi. How are you, Amy? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, extremely tired, but like uh, hyped for to be talking about masculinity, which is the theme of this show. It's my favourite topic. <laughs> <laughs> Deeply unbelievable. Okay, good. The construction of a fascist masculinity is central to any kind of formation of fascist ideology, we would argue. Um, and we should... Stay right, stay right from the start that there's going to be a content note for discussions of uh, sexual violence, misogyny, racism. We're talking about really bad people. I mean, it's going to be bad. Uh, if you, if you like, just to give you a heads up. From the original fascist movements like the British Union fascists or Mussolini's Italy, the construction of a new man was central to kind of how that movement started. And it has its roots in the like kind of World War One dispossessed veterans coming back and feeling completely alienated from like pastoral familial society and f- and needing to go off on their own and be men in groups um the british union fascist was especially interesting cuz for the ev- evocation of um a colonial frontier mentality um it's often thought that america is the only place that has a real frontier in the in the west but you know places like india and pakistan were you know like mythologized in in British Union and fascist kind of uh, literature. Um, And we see this moving throughout the 20th century until we get the alt-right of today, where we we see a real conjunction of of, um, white nationalist and intensely misogynist thought coming together in the alt-right. Yeah, I think that's... No, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, a great summary of the kind of movement from... Uh, classical fascism until basically today i think we're, what we're going to do in this episode is try and kind of tease out some more kind of detail about how this transition has happened and what new things have been added to uh, the politics of gender or the politics of masculinity and how has it been reconfigured um in the contemporary world is there anything you want to add to that amy um no that was great um i think i guess like we'll yeah be kind of speaking about more of the specifically like especially in the uk um about different um yeah like ideologies that the far right are forming here and how that relates to gender and race and how they basically uphold one another um but yeah well i think that's a key point as well because Mm -hmm. i think when you're talking about a fascist masculinity you is always defined against a femininity or some kind of like binary and which it is like above, and I think that's and so I think that's what we need we need to kind of really grapple with in this episode. Is like we're not really we can't just talk about masculinity. We have to talk about womanhood and femininity, and 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 how those things are subordinated within like a racial hierarchy as well, um, which is which I find incredibly interesting if appalling. The most kind of um, I guess vivid uh, formation of this recently was the politics around the DFLA. Um, 
they ran a kind of completely cynical, uh, obscene campaign. Uh, they claimed uh, as a way of gaining uh, justice for people who had been um, sexually abused, but the campaign was kind of full and through and through uh, racist and uh, misogynist and was almost exclusively led by um, men in the kind of classical trope of white men saving um, women from like brown men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there we see in the DFLA like multiple constructions of masculinity. We see like the heroic saviour white man. We also see like the malevolent um, Muslim migrant man preying on uh, young girls. And yeah. I think these are some of the things we need to tease out. Yeah. Yeah. I think like essentially it's like there is a differentiation between kind of like white masculinity and the masculinity of the other. So essentially like, you know, if, if, uh, you know, like members of the far right, for example, convict, um, commit sexual violence, then like nobody condemns them. That's fine. Um, you know, when they are violent towards like women of color, that's completely fine. But then as soon as like it's black and black or Asian men, um, then that's like barbaric and uncivilized and like aggressive. So it's like basically like this very kind of like neocolonial picture of like, the white male savior, uh, the woman and children is kind of um, uh, like in need of protection and um, vulnerable and powerless victims. Um, whereas, yeah, black and Asian men are basically, um, you know, uncivilized and aggressive. Um, so, yeah, they basically kind of that's the justification that they use, um, which is. Yeah, it's it's a basically like they they basically have like a sexist and racist agenda, um, and they kind of create this like narrative to justify like all sorts of like hate speech and things like that. Um, and I guess like yeah, from like a feminist perspective, like the issue with that is that research has shown that sexual violence is most committed by uh, somebody in our everyday lives. So like our partners, ex-partners, teachers, uh, priests, you know, bosses and so on. Um, so basically like to say like, oh, you know, sexual violence is only a problem of uh, like, you know, like black masculinity of Asian or Asian masculinity is, you know, not co- not only completely dishonest, it actually makes it um, more difficult than it already is to confront how devastatingly widespread sexual violence is in our country. Um, so it kind of you know it, it allows basically the far right to displace uh the responsibility of sexual violence that exists within like you know white masculinity or whatever you want to call it um and yeah that and that kind of like helps them to um yeah uphold fascism which is basically about keeping social order because violence is and sexual violence is an inherent part of fascism and just to widen the lens out a little bit the the dfla is a particularly like uk example but you know these kind of invasionary narratives narratives of like hordes of like brown men invading invading europe have been like key have been key to like reactionary politics in general but also fascist politics the identitarian movement generation identity the kind of feminist wing what they called uh uh 120 decibels um is is has its has its sharp, that kind of invasionary narrative has its sharpest expression, um, but of course any kind of reactionary conservative government at the moment, radical right government like Viktor Orban in Hungary, Salvini in Italy, it's all based on this kind of invasionary narrative. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's essentially like, 
yeah, like the content they, they constantly talk about, you know, the rape of our country and the rape of our girls. Um, but then like when yeah, like and especially in the, in the US, um, the, the far right are basically, you know, like justifying rape and or or even say like rape isn't a thing, rape isn't like marital rape is like impossible and things like that. Um, so there's a clear kind of like double standard um, and cognitive dissonance. Let's go back to the past, back into kind of classical fascism and see how some of these things are kind of configured in um, movements back then. One of the things you mentioned, Alex, was uh, the Freikorps um, returning from the First World War, basically kind of a like petty bourgeois or a bourgeois kind of officer class people coming back and having been... Um, what they saw as never having been defeated militarily, but kind of stabbed in the back. And this narrative that, of course, became you know, very, very heavily racialized and was probably racialized from the very beginning as well um, about uh, betrayal. And fearing um, in Klaus Terolite's telling in this incredible book, uh, Male Fantasies, fearing a slow slipping into what is described as kind of a slimy mire of bourgeois life the kind of mediocrity of life after the first world war and after this kind of completely macho space of the military and one of the kind of kind of components of a classical analysis of fascism is that the fascism is distinct from other totalitarian ideologies or other authoritarian ideologies in that instead of being a government that is distant and kind of rules over you fascism is everywhere every part of your life and so the private sphere becomes the public sphere and so anyone who is awake is in fascism and is required to act by kind of um, fascist rules and so what we're looking at is what alex said earlier this completely macho space acting completely independently acting in a way that at least in their imagination um, excludes women and so you can see fascism as an attempt to produce a male-only space and of and course that, that male-only space is like intrinsic to Fascism's ability to 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 exist, like the only way you can like have this such wholesale wholesale seizure of private life is if you have these like independent kind of extra military units of men enforcing and policing this fascism, and and so the contemporary instantiation you might say of this male only space is the not explicitly far right yet, in most part, um, men going their own way often condensed into the acronym MGTOW or MUGTOW. Uh, it's a movement of what you might think of as kind of male separatism, uh, attempts to create kind of male-only spaces based on an honest... It's interesting the direction the, 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 the incel movement has gone, which is now like a patriarchal kind of expression of male violence, which kind of uh, exists in like these very public kind of uh, acts of violence um, and these manifestos. Um, when incel was originally conceived, it was conceived of by a woman who who took on who took on that identifier for herself and created four spaces on the internet for men and women to talk about this kind of condition that they had, this inability to have sex, um, and that has morphed. And it has I I would say it's definitely very there's been a very conscious effort on the part of like reactions in general to kind of take this kind of like community of people who are like very sad in their lives and very alienated and turn it into a much more sinister direction and towards a much more racist, misogynist direction. Um, a key figure in this was 
uh, this guy called F. Roger Devlin, who is, you know, a white nationalist, avowed member, self-described member of the alt-right, who wrote a text in 2006 called Sexual Utopia in Power. Um, and what's really interesting about this text is that almost 100% of the concepts that the alt-right talk about today uh, have, exist in this one essay. And it really is a foundational text for not just incels, but pick-up artists, men going their own way, and other kind of like, uh, the Gamergate crowd as well. Um, there's this talk of hypergamy, which is uh, the, the concept of women marrying up to, or like seeking men of higher social status, of male harems, women with vast quantities of men that they all sleep with. Um, and the kind of like naturalization of human relationships. And what I mean by that is of, of the 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 use of uh, the use of like mating patterns in in the animal world, and how that and has that and how that relates to human behaviour, which obviously humans are very different from baboons, for example. Um, we don't, you know, shit out of trees. Um, we speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I even said that. Um, anyway, <laughs> it sounded clever in my head. <laughs> Um, the thing, the interesting thing about sexual utopia of power, of course, is that it's really not a racist text. There's one line at the beginning, and it starts off racist, and it says, uh, Devlin says, It is well known to readers of this journal that white birth rates worldwide have suffered a catastrophic decline in recent decades. And it's important to point out that the journal he refers to is called Occidental Quarterly, which is a white nationalist you know, journal uh, with pre pretensions towards academia. But apart, aside from that, that line framing the entire thing, um, kind of the collapse of like Western civilization is is kind of uh, put on women and the sexual liberation that women had in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Um, we should perhaps kind of clarify why we think it's important to talk about this stuff. And one of the things we talked about a lot in our introduction to this podcast series was um, this idea of metapolitics. So it's not necessarily that we're identifying. Uh, Mugtau and you know other things uh, that appear to be kind of basically kind of naff stupid cultural movements as uh, explicitly fascists because I don't think they are fascist yet most of them definitely there are some fascists in these movements um, like authentic proper fascists but like they're not explicitly fascist movements at the moment but it's important that the entire discourse is being shifted the feminist anti-fascist assembly have made a really important intervention into uh, this question of masculinity in the far right, not only politically, but organising against the DFLA in October. So the the reason that for, for the Feminist Anti-Fascist Assembly, um, putting feminism at the heart of anti-fascist um, organising, um, why that is important um, is, you know, of course, yes, like uh, the subordination of women uh, uh, is a really core part of fascist ideology. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of race and gender is very much entangled um, in their discourse. Um, and we've seen in history that, you know, fascism basically, you know, o always leads to uh, the, the, the infringement into rights of women and uh, LGB LGBTQ people and so on. Um, but like the, the, why this kind of feminist anti-fascist uh, critique of fascism has been so um, effective has been because uh, it kind of like we're we're not just confronting them physically we're, we're also confronting them politically um, so by you know um, 
so first of all, we're kind of taking away the the right for them to claim that they're representing women and children and speaking on behalf of them, um, and as if they're kind of like the experts on sexual violence, uh, when in fact, like they're you know they're using complete kind of false statistics and uh, false reports and not really looking at the reality of um, sexual violence uh, being you know being part of like all of our communities and uh, as a result of the patriarchy capitalism um um why fascism is always is is so um you know like resonates so much with the people is because in points of crises they pick up on issues that people are real issues that people are facing and kind of twisting this into a kind of divide and rule thing of like blame like scapegoating uh like either women like sexually liberated women or uh you know trans people or like well of course you know um um non-white people a part of uh feminist anti-fascism is to um be like yes the the issues of sexual violence is real um but it's not um it's you know it's it's not because of like black and asian men and you know like quote like imported rape culture um but it's because it's you know actually mostly for example the failure of the state or the failure of police and social uh um social care uh to actually protect women um and vulnerable girls and so on um so and also to kind of make clear that feminists have always been there uh, fighting sexual violence and fighting for the safety and rights of women uh, while the far right historically haven't. I think that that point is, is key. Um, you know, there, there really was a problem in these like t- towns like Telford and Rochester. There were, there, these things really happened to like real people. And it is a traditional left issue that was completely abandoned. And. It allowed it allowed the DFLA and Tommy Robinson to come in and, and identify a culprit. It was the wrong culprit. The culprit was, you know, patriarchy in the state, like you said. But mm-hmm. but they, they got in there first and they they were the ones who managed to like create this kind of um fear around this real issue. Um which is obviously like a feature of fascist movements everywhere. Like they look for kind of big political topics and kind of jump on them. You can see this also in like generation identities obsession with reconquista like there's a real fear in the country about uh, about immigration it's not a, it's not a, like a found one founding in fact or anything but they've identified a big mass of people who are who would be motivated by this thing and are pushing it heavily um can you tell us a bit more about what that is reconquista um which was a, a historical event in spain uh, where christian Christian people kicked out the Moors, Muslims um, from the south of Spain, reconquered Spain, uh, and this is framed in the in the kind of in the United Kingdom as uh, kicking out Muslims and kicking out non-white migrants. I mean, generation identity, their own weird brand of like pan-European thinking, which is not going to catch on here because you know Brexit and uh, and the fact that like the union is such a symbol within fascist like mythology in 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 which is very much unlike kind of pagan and uh christian kind of pan-europeanism which is much more prevalent in france and germany and you know denmark fuck denmark <laughs> <laughs> i think the first time fascist assembly has been super interesting i just wanted to get quickly um quickly ask you you're clearly making a like kind of intervention in like kind of fascist activity and fascist kind of movements but is there an element of like intervening in like anti-fascist movements as well and and if so 
mm. why why is that because i think it is i personally think it's an important intervention to make mm. and yeah yeah i think like yeah so of course you know there's this kind of general idea that anti-fascist um organizing and action has been historically quite like macho you know and that it's kind of like m you know meeting the fascists on the street um because they are on the street and kind of like this uh, macho one-upmanship which i guess you know is, is is like the kind of you know stereotype of anti-fascism um which like isn't fully true because of course there have always been like a lot of women in these um like organizing um doing a lot of kind of behind the scenes uh work as well as like being on the streets there as well um um, but yeah, like essentially when we got together um, as assembly, one of the first things that there was kind of like consensus in the room with was that like a lot of the anti-fascist organizing has been quite alienating to women and non-binary people. And a lot of them did have uh, were involved in the organizing, but at some point just like felt like it wasn't like um, a place for them. Um, they felt... Um, you know, like especially the idea of like accessibility and care, which is uh, a core part of um, feminist anti-fascism and our idea of what like militancy is. Um, yeah. So, th yeah, essentially, I think th th it is there is this um, it is a form of because it's not it's not just like a problem within like anti-fascism. It's a general problem within the left that certain voices do get marginalized and that, for example, like things like childcare is neglected. Um, but either way, like, yeah, we're, it's it is um, we we are, you know, for us, it is very much about kind of like redefining what militancy means so that militancy is not just um like physical confrontation, but like it can also be joyful. Uh, it can be warm. It can be caring. It can be accessible. Um, like all these sorts of things. I, I, and also, I think I, I really like this kind of idea of like reconfiguring militancy or reconfiguring what it means to be anti-fascist. Um, I think, and 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 that can play out in many ways. Um, there, there is certainly a kind of masculine idea of like uh, uh, there should be a. I think that there is. There is a there is a welcome de-emphasis of militancy as like individual individual prowess and men testing themselves against other men in like the street and and towards like a kind of militancy that means like militantly organized people acting together people like supporting each other caring for each other recognizing that a movement is built from many different parts which often often the anti-fascist movement like kind of legal support or care kind of care support has been either not done. And it's like really messed up a lot of people or it has been kind of invisibilized and left to like partners or left to like, um, you know, friends or, you know, children or whatever. You know, the people who like go to prison to visit people or the people who like, you know, after being out on the street, have a, have a, have a meal cooked, things like that, which 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 has really been in the background and is now increasingly being foregrounded. And I think that's that's to be commended. basically. Yeah, I think like. um and, like, I think th th one of the reasons that we felt that this was so important was because, uh, like, anti-fascism has to be a mass movement. Um, so uh, for which, like, accessibility is, like, a really important part. Um, you know, essentially, like, in the past, it was, like sort of enough to kind of just meet them on the streets. But now the far right have their hands in the media in you know, like parts of mainstream uh, politics um, all over the Internet. Um so anti-fascism does need to have a kind of constant presence on the streets and in our communities um, and kind of build on this idea of uh, community self-defense, um, anti-fascism as community self-defense and working class solidarity uh, to put like feminism at its heart. 
Um, so I, yeah, I, I think that was like the, like one of the main ideas was to kind of like, we need to build a mass movement. How do we do this? Well, first of all, it needs to include the people who um, weren't, you know, in the past, like able to do these sort of anti-fascist actions. For whatever reason that, that it could be like a founded reason or it could be like a perceived reason. Like the fact that these people are not involved or feel alienated is still a problem, I think. Mm. Great. We've talked um, a bit about the kind of topology of um, men in fascism. So um, you, for example, uh, Alex mentioned the racialization of men and Amy, you mentioned this as well, the, the kind of sense that there is a, um, there are like white pure men and then there are like other men who are in some way like lesser. Um, that's in kind of classical fascism today that in, for example, in the alt-right that's um, kind of transposed onto um, what is it? Chads and beaters. So chads are like the kind of alpha male. Um, you know, soy um, boys as well. Soy boys are the beaters, right? Uh, soy boys. Soy are like, boys are beaters, but because they eat soy, which has got estrogen in it. Okay, so this is incredibly strange biological theory of um, effeminization, um, basically. So not only is the um, fascism seen as rescuing a masculinity that has slipped, which is a trope, of course, from um, classical fascism as well but now masculinity is seen as being kind of degraded continuously even by the circulation of xenoestrogens these idea that there's a kind of estrogen that exists in soy that um, gets into your body and renders you effeminate yeah it's a completely baffling theory like there's there's nothing to back it up at all but it's kind of like broken down like the the kind of body essentialism of like of 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 like of the past into like a hormone essentialism. You're not right. a man unless you've got the right <laughs> testosterone level yeah. or the right sperm count. You yeah, know, this is there's, there's like there seems to be like a breaking with the past where there was like you know you were a man if you had the body of a man, into a kind of hormone essentialism where you're a man if you have the right testosterone level or you have the right sperm count. And eating a certain kind of soy will put increase the amount of estrogen in your body and give you breasts. It's it's. It, it, it's it's kind of it seems it seems really wacky when you say it out loud, but these kind of like kind of viewpoints have infused a certain kind of reactionary man on the internet, and and it, we really need to grapple with why that is and how that's happened. Um, they they kind of love the kind of categorization of men into like alphas and betas, like you said, and and soy boys and different various different kinds of incels people people kind of bemoan their lack of kind of um, sexual activity because they have putting it down to factors of having thin wrists or you know having a, a bit of bone in the wrong place or you know this thing about wrong face. Yeah. this thing about xenoestrogen and about soy boys is obviously um distinctly kind of like trans misogynist right it's, it's also like kind of a deep-rooted transphobia um that's kind of you know structuring this as well so it's not it's not just misogyny and like kind of it's I guess like classical form it's also like transphobic. Yeah, that is like part of like fascism, right? It's like reducing everybody to their kind of like essences in there, especially their biological essences, so that they can be neatly kind of categorized into a social order um and you know into like some kind of like fun functioning fascist system. Um and I think like yeah, like I think there are there, there's this whole kind of like idea like idea of like um like fascism or the the far right is not just fighting outsiders; it's fighting insiders as well. And within those insiders are these kind of like yeah, like these uh like cultural Marxists and um like feminists and like all these kind of things. Um, the enemy within. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Um, so there was like this like weird like duality of like what the fasc- what fascists are against, and that that's another reason why you know like like feminist anti-fascism so is, is so important because it's like like we need to have like the people the insiders also need to kind of like stand up against fascism because like to the fascists we're all kind of like the same thing that they need to kind of like control and yeah i saw so i saw a great expression of, of this actually i was i was i was on i was on october 13th but i was um what's called spotting which is like walking around in the middle of the fash dress like a normal um to see where they're going and what their mood is and whether they want to fight people or not and i got talking to a to like a you know quite a classical looking football lad um who was in a, dressed in a bomber jacket skinhead kind of swaggered waved his arms around quite a lot and he he had this kind of conception of of the left of, of the left men as kind of like people who were wanted to fight but were unable to um <laughs> and i thought that was a that is obviously another key theme in fascism is that the enemy has to be weak and strong at the same time. They have to be a threat, but they also can't be better than you. Um, and so this, this conversation went, um, I said to him, uh, what are all these people? He goes, oh, they just want to fight. They just want to fight. And I was like, oh, well, why don't you go fight them? He's like, they're just a bunch of faggots. Why would I fight faggots? They're not worth my time. And it's 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 really interesting kind of duality of kind of the enemy and the 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 person who is below your attention as an enemy and i think mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of separatism stuff goes to that a lot of that kind of men going their own way in seldom is is like a is like a deep a deep rooted fracture with kind of how people relate to each other fundamentally um and i th- i also think that's another reason why feminist satisfaction is such an important concept is that it it kind of it kind of foregrounds that kind of that that dichotomy in a very real way mm. You can't rethink kind of racial hierarchies but without rethinking that kind of the implicit gender hierarchies and kind of categorizations that are going on within that. What I thought was really funny was that um, after the demo on the 13th, when the feminist anti-fascist blog, le- blog led the anti-fascist demonstration was one of the comments on like uh, from the DFLA or some, some far right person was like, they sounded like a bunch of women. Like not realizing, basically, yeah, there were like around eight hundred women there, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, we talked about the kind of topology of um, men under fascism. Can we talk a bit about the topology of women? About um, what, uh, how the different kind of women are like kind of broken up into like different types. Um, everyone knows kind of the the, the saints, um, the whore, etc. These kind of dichotomies. Um, how do you think these are kind of configured in? say, contemporary fascism, uh, for example, in the DFLA. There's this really interesting thing, just going back to F. Roger Devlin, in that he he describes the fact that there are no women in, in, in like, white nationalist politics to the fact that they're, in, they're just weak and they can't take it. Um, but there's, there's another interesting uh, fascist thinker, a woman called Wolfie James, white nationalist, um, and she has a theory of that, Women are—it's it's kind of a bit like feminist anti-fascism in that she says that women can't be learners. Um, I mean, obviously, these are horrendously essentialized. Women can't be learners; they get lonely without kind of interaction with other women, and that is why it's hard to bring people into a movement that's dominated by men. Is that there's no, there's no kind of expression of like kind of womanhood within white nationalism. Um, I mean, yes, that's the problem with white nationalism. It's like it's inherently exclusionary and reactionary, and and. And is policed by like kind of quite violent kind of hierarchies that play out on the internet and in real life. Um, 
So I, th- I think it, I think that's there's an there's an interesting conversation to be had about racist women's place within racism, or like kind of fascist women's place within the alt right, um, which I don't think has really been properly grappled with, aside from the kind of like controversy early this year where a lot of like alt right women were speaking out about how alienating it was to be a woman in the alt right. Um, yeah, I, I recently watched like a YouTube video with uh, Brittany Pettibone and like two other kind of like female uh, figures within the far right. And yeah, they, they spoke exactly about this, this kind of idea of like within the far right, there aren't like spaces for women to kind of get together. And like they were talking about like, t- you know, talk about women's stuff and like how women like to talk about like girl, like whatever shit like that. Um yeah, but then at the same time, you look at somewhere like India and the far right movement there, which is like very much like led by women as well. There's a, and that's because they've kind of really tapped into this, like, um, like women getting together and talking about like, um, like it, like women's women's issues and things like this. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is quite interesting. But like, yeah, essentially, what you know, like the feminist assent- uh, anti-fascist assembly is trying to do is like like get women together and be like okay what what issues are we actually facing like how does this relate to what the fascists are talking about uh and things like this um but yeah like going back to this idea of like um you know um categorization of women within uh the far right yeah like the fascism has always had this categorization of good women and bad women and kind of like good women are rewarded um and idealized and stuff like that whereas like bad women are like punished and uh things like this so it's like there's this total double standard like whereas you know like so the um i was talk as i was talking about earlier like you know the dfla want to be protectors of women and children but then they're only going to protect the good ones um and like the bad ones just yeah and and that speaks to like a fascist nostalgia, which is like a, a nostalgic attitude is key to fascism, or like a harking back to a better time, a golden time. Um, and we can see that in like the the time when the white people were, you know, much more explicitly ruling the world. And it can see that in a time when, you know, women knew their place and had children and made food and kind of let men do their things in, in, in their lives. Um, one of the kind of interesting parts of the Klaus Tewerlite uh, book, Male Fantasies, the wives of the Freikorps don't really appear in the stories. He quotes seven diaries at length, and in all of them, um, the wives or girlfriends of these Freikorps don't even get named. Um, whereas kind of minor characters in the story of their great conquests all get names. But there are certain kinds of submissive women who aren't even really to be defended, but are kind of just absent from the political sphere and then the third the second category is that there's these kind of high-class german women who function as nurses at the front and he describes them as pure white squares just kind of floating around and they're kind of annoying but they don't really get in the way and they're not they're kind of deeply sexless and then there are these horrifying completely um terrifyingly um engulfing communist women uh, who will devour you at the slightest um, moment. And the, the real urgency in the text is to escape being subsumed into these, um, you know, the kind of terrifying mores of uh, communist uh, kind of hell women. I wonder... Communist hell women sounds great. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, <laughs> I mean, so Amy, could you tell us a little bit more about what the Feminist Anti-Fascist Assembly has been doing and will be doing into the future? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so basically the feminist anti-fascist assembly came out of um, having kind of open meetings uh, where kind of women and non-binary people would come together and be like, okay, you know, so the far right are speaking on behalf of us on the idea of like sexual violence and like on violence in general. Um, so getting together and be like, okay, so what are what is the violence that we're actually facing in our everyday lives? Uh, what does violence look like in our communities? Um and through that kind of like realizing that essentially uh, the racist solutions that uh, the far right are proposing, like like tightening border controls and, um, you know, attacking migrants and um, women returning to submissive, outdated roles in the household are, you know, the, not the answers to uh, structural violence. Um, and what we kind of like this kind of assembly style meetings um, have been really central to kind of like developing our ideas and um um, discourse and things. So we essentially want to bring that to uh, cities across the country um, to uh, basically get, bring you know, n not just like in large cities, but especially in um, areas that have been central to the mobilization around sexual violence. So for example, like Huddersfield, Sunderland, Rotherham, um, to kind of bring together women uh, to discuss, you know, what, like, like, um, kind of develop uh, decentralized like discussions like community healing and consciousness raising over like either breakfast clubs communal meals coffees with childcare, uh these sort of things to kind of discuss how to meet community needs uh how to support like existing like feminist or anti-fascist initiatives um to discuss sexual violence like on our own terms not in racist terms um and to support survivors um we also want to kind of connect our struggles like internationally and to kind of highlight that you know fascism is a capitalist phenomena across the world that is affecting women uh will affect women as well um and that women are already at the forefront of fighting fascism um so for and combine like so for example uh last saturday um combining this with our mission basically to set like our own agenda um instead of just meeting the far right when they're on the streets um on a time and place that they set um, instead to set the time and place ourselves and to kind of have like a continuous like presence on the street ourselves. Um, we um, took International Day of Eliminating Violence Against Women, which is last Saturday. Um, so our Kurdish sisters, Polish sisters and Brazilian sisters got together and uh, to kind of do like a militant and joyful um, anti-fascist march uh, across uh, central London um, to basically highlight this. Um, and we want to continue doing that to basically build like international feminist anti-fascist solidarity. And thirdly, we also want to do kind of like regular workshops and skill, skill shares from media training to self-defense as well as like a s supporting and attending red gyms um, so that, you know, everybody kind of feels comfortable taking on any role within the movement. How can people who want to get involved begin? Uh, so definitely just um, come to one of our open meetings where they happen almost every two weeks at the moment. Um, so just go on our Facebook page, um, uh, Feminist Anti-Fascist Assembly, uh, check out when our next open meeting is and just come along. 12 rules. <laughs> Yeah,